Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, the 17th of February, 2023. Uh, welcome back to the show. A show all about asking questions. If I do anything on this show, it's ask other people questions. And I like to think that I know the kinds of questions I should be asking. Uh, and I ask those questions at the right time. Of course, I don't always do that, but sometimes I do. Uh, I'm a little intimidated by today's show because the man on the show has just written a book about conversation, asking the right questions. Um, uh, Constantine uh, Andriopoulos um, is a professor, a business school professor from London. He has a new book out, Purposeful Curiosity, The Power of Asking the Right Questions at the Right Time. It's a book that's just out. And it's rather intimidating for me as a professional questioner. So maybe I'll throw it over to Costas. Uh, Costas, what question should I begin with with you? What's the right first question for a man who's just written a book about asking the right questions? What was the experience, first of all, being curious about curiosity? What was the experience about writing a book? What was the experience about spending six or seven years of one's life to research something and write about it? So this, this would be the questions that I would ask. And uh, because you when you're asking something... Do you, do you regret that seven years, Costas? Is, it, is that how long this book took you? Of course, what we have to realize is that I'm not a professional author. I'm also an academic. I'm also part of the leadership team of the school that we have here in London. So I was doing this, juggling a lot of different things. Uh, to answer your question, no. Uh, I've enjoyed every minute researching this and uh, writing this. And I've met some uh, fabulous people um, around the world who are super curious. And they actually channel their curiosity to achieve their purpose which was the, the title of, um, of the book. Because I didn't think your answer was particularly convincing. What's the first question you would ask yourself? Why did I write a book, a book about this? That will be the question that I will that's ask. That's a rather about. vague question, though. I mean, that's the kind of question that bad interviewers ask, especially on a book show. It's the easiest question to start. Why do you write the book? You, you must be able to come up with something a little bit more original, Costas. The, the thing is that when somebody asks, uh, starts a, a conversation with somebody, they would like to build trust and rapport. And uh, so they start with the easy ones. And as the interview progresses, then they ask the, the most difficult one. And uh, I'm saying this from the... Yeah, that's an interesting strategy because I feel maybe that's why... I'm not a very good interviewer. I like to start with the hard questions. I like to put people on the back foot. I like to make yeah. the interaction edgy from the beginning. I like to make them a little scared. But you're saying that's the wrong way of doing it? When you don't know somebody, yes. Uh, because as you have to imagine, I'm an academic, which means I'm a researching company, which means I'm interviewing people and observe them. And I spend a lot of time on the field. So the first thing is, can this person trust me? Can I open up? Because the moment that you're saying that you're curious about something, it means that uh, you're ignorant about something. So you show vulnerability. So what you expect from somebody else is to accept this vulnerability and uh, carry on you know, with your uh, journey. 
That's why you start always, you know, with questions that people find easy to answer. Yeah, well, that's an interesting, uh, and it's probably, I, maybe I should do that more. Maybe I'll have a better show with more listeners. Um, so, okay, so let's, let's, um, let's go your way, Costas. It's your book. Uh, and as they say in Silicon Valley, your show, you're the customer. So uh, why did you write this book? Very simply. Why did I write this book? Because um, I'm, I was growing older, uh, but my curiosity was not dropping. So I was trying to figure out, you know, what am I doing or what do people do in terms of maintaining the curiosity as they grow older? So that was the first thing that uh, triggered, for instance, the project. The second thing is that a lot of people consider me as very annoying to actually go back to what you were saying earlier, to make it edgy, right? So when somebody tells you that you are very annoying, then you don't know how to take it. Is this a compliment? Is, is this a negative thing? So I took it as a compliment which means that why do people feel that I'm annoying? And people feel that I'm annoying because I'm asking a lot of questions. And I'm still asking a lot of questions despite turning 50 a month ago. So I wanted to see how people around the world actually maintain the curiosity as they grow older. So that was the first thing. The second thing is how to maintain our curiosity in times where there are loads of distractions surrounding us. So notifications, emails, things that uh, people tell us about, so what happens to all this curiosity? Is this wasted? So I wanted to see how people actually channel their curiosity to achieve their goal, to achieve their purpose, to achieve, for instance, their ambitions or goals in their careers, in their lives, in their ventures. And that's why I started this project. How do people channel their curiosity? Uh, the book comes with lots of blurbs. Usually, I think Adam Grant must be some sort of AI bot because every book that comes out, especially in business, gets a blurb from him. Uh, he says about your book, this book nails the difference between idle curiosity and a productive drive to discover. Would you agree with that, Costas? I, I rather like idle curiosity. Um, are you in favor of idle curiosity or a productive drive to discover? That sounds a bit business school to me. Okay, that's a, that's a great question. And the, the interesting thing is that we are quite curious. We ask a lot of questions. And the problem is what happens to all these questions that we ask or what happens to all this inquisitiveness that we have is, again, is this converted into something? Am I developing a product, as they say in Silicon Valley? Am I launching a product? Am I thinking about a new idea? Or is this just scratching the surface of something or scratching the edge, then getting satisfied and moving to the next thing? To me, idle curiosity is more like this. So I have a, um, a need, I scratch it, I'm satisfied, and I'm moving to the next one. So we move from one to the next, to the next, to the next, and actually nothing happens, right? So productive is more like we have to focus our curiosity in order to achieve something. So for instance, you have a very successful show, you are interviewing people, most probably you have to, you need to have a little bit of productive curiosity. You have to research them to figure out what they have done, why they should be featured in your show. So this is productive. You want to develop something, to convert something into, in this case, a very interesting show. To me, it's not about either or. It's about both. So sometimes idle curiosity does help, and sometimes productive curiosity also helps. The problem that I see is that we are focusing more the last five years, 10 years, more on the idle curiosity. So we spend a lot of time on social media. We spend a lot of time on the internet. And the question is, what happens with all this exploration that we do? This is the question. Now, 
sometimes we need to have the adult curiosity because it relaxes us, it puts us into paths that most probably we have, we wouldn't go. So both are interesting. To me, it's more about focusing on the productive. I'm just making a number, 70% of our time, and leaving the idle for 30%. But both are needed. You dedicate the book to Lydia, the most curious girl in the world. I think that's your daughter. Is there a, and I assume she's part of what we might think of as the social media generation. Is there a generational thing, uh, Costas, when it comes to asking questions? Our, Our generation, you've noted already that you're 50. Um, you're obviously older than your daughter. Um, is there a generational thing? Are younger people unable to ask questions? You teach at a business school in London, so you deal with a lot of uh, younger people yep. in in their twenties. There is um, first of all, uh, when you look at studies, teachers in schools and high schools they ask around three hundred questions per day, right? So students in schools and high schools are actually learning to answer and not to ask questions. So they are conditioned. So that's the first thing. Then they come to university, and this is where it's becoming this thing worse. So when I'm always teaching, I'm asking my students to ask a lot of questions in the class. So to come with questions, to research topics that they like, to bring what they have actually learned, you know, and share it with the class. So you have to set the tone here. To me, it's natural, as I'm I'm noticing with you, to ask questions. To, To them, it's natural to search for things, but not to ask questions. So we have to develop a, a forum. We have to develop a, some conditions, some values, um, a system where people will be asking uh, questions, and especially when we're talking about the younger generations. So whenever we're having dinner as a family, I'm always asking you, so what was the day? What were the questions that uh, you asked? What were the things that you wanted to explore? So what did you find? So there has to be this kind of uh, interaction and conversation happening during school, but also in, um, in dinner and family time. The book is written from the perspective of the questioner, purposeful curiosity, the power of asking the right questions at the right time. You suggested that it's good to make people trust you uh, so that you can ask these questions. But I wonder whether when one asks questions, one should also think of the person we're asking it's for their benefit, not necessarily for ours. So um, is purposeful curiosity, is, is its purpose purely selfish from the point of view of the questioner? Or do we need to also think of the person that we're asking the question of? Uh, absolutely. So a lot of research has been done in terms of identifying the people to interview and ask, those, and ask them those questions, as well as to make it relevant. What I was amazed with was that when we were starting the conversation about curiosity, a lot of them were smiling. And a lot of them, after, you know, smiling, they, could, they were daydreaming. And I think what they were thinking, because I asked them about this, was when they were younger. And they started, for instance, thinking, you know, when they were 10 years old and 15 years old, and the explorations that they were doing and the adventures that they were going. So um, it, takes the, it, it took them back. Now, when we when we like to make it relevant to them, of course, we like to find something that aligns with their value system, that aligns with what they do, that aligns with their goals. So a lot of the people that I uh, interviewed come from um, entrepreneurship or uh, come from uh, creative, let's say, professions. So in a lot of them, curiosity is a very important, let's say, skill to, to maintain and actually exercise because we have to imagine that curiosity leads to creativity that actually can be turned into innovation. So there are 
clearly links between being curious and using our curiosity as a basis to come up with your new ideas. So a lot of them, when we were talking about curiosity and we're starting this conversation, then we were going to, where have you applied? When have you applied, for instance, your curiosity? What was the outcome? So they could easily see the conversation that we were having and how this links to what they're doing. So a lot of times we're doing things uh, subconsciously or unconsciously. So when you start the conversation and you make things very open and vocal, then you start realizing, oh, I have been doing this for some time and this is what it led me to. So this is good. Let me continue doing this. Why am I not doing this uh, as much as I should? So they start thinking about things that prevent them from being curious, things that prevent them, for instance, to use the curiosity to be creative. So there are a lot of things that they value from the conversation. And to be honest with you, I had a lot of questions who were... I hope you're always honest When people say, to be honest with me, that suggests that sometimes you're not telling the truth. Ah, yes. So that, that's, uh, that's correct. But there is a solution that I found. When you ask questions, then, and if somebody said, tells you this, then you look at your watch and you try to see whether they are responding to you very quickly. So if the response is, let's say, immediate, immediate, then there isn't much manipulation. But if they, it takes a lot of times, then most probably they are massaging, for instance, the truth. I wonder if there's a, an ideological element here. You're suggesting that openness, curiosity, interest in the world will also make you rich. It sounds like a, you, can have your eight, you, you can have your cake and eat it too style ideology that comes out of Silicon Valley. Are you suggesting the closed-minded people, people who don't ask questions, people who aren't curious about the world, make poor business people? Um, there is possibility, yes, to actually make bad decisions and um, not exploring uh, in depth um, what is in front of you. Yes, the likelihood of uh, coming up with a mistake is not coming with the best solution, not coming up with, not coming up with a, a very innovative uh, product. Yes, it's, uh, it's quite high. Um, so we so have conservatives, yeah, people who parochial people, conservatives, people who are narcissistic and inward, they don't make good business people. Good people uh, make good people. openness. Openness is profitability too. It's a it's an interesting thesis. I'm sure there's lots of research to support it. Costas, um, you're obviously from Greece, judging from your name, or originally at least. Uh, we did a show with yes. Armand Angur, a classical scholar, uh, last year on what the ancient Greeks can teach us about innovation. I, I was thinking about Socrates, of course, who was the first and the greatest of all questioners um, in the Western tradition. Is, yeah. is your book essentially a, a 21st century version of, Socratic uh, argumentation supporting so the kind of questions that Socrates asked in Athens uh, in, in the 5th century BC? I would never compare myself with Socrates. Well, I'm not comparing uh, so yourself personally, but the, the thesis is one that the thesis, Socrates yes. invented in the 5th century BC in Athens. The thesis is that uh, people learn by asking them questions, so they do a lot of learning by self-exploration and exploration. Yes, it's not very far from this. The thesis is that you are doing a lot of things with other people because um, curiosity will take you up to a particular level, but when you involve other people in this journey, they can take you further. So this is the point, which goes what we what you were saying earlier about narcissists. 
narcissists are very difficult people to work with, right? So, yeah, maybe they will have, you know, teams, so maybe their teams are revolving doors. Then, you know, people have to come and go. So somebody who uses this shows vulnerability. Somebody who uses this um, works with other people. So the Socratic method was about, you know, people who are learning through questioning and people who are learning about what is in front of them, but also what is about them. So what is in front of you sometimes is something that you are interested to research because you have a personal interest. And while you're researching this, you learn a lot about yourself. You also cite a number of other the great figures in the Western tradition, Da Vinci, um, Einstein, yes. uh, uh, Sir Alexander Fleming, of course, who invented uh, penicillin. Uh, are, are some of these greats in the Western tradition all men, of course, uh, uh, were they or... Are they models of, 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 of asking the right questions at the right time? Sometimes uh, we have to spend more time on the questioning rather than on quickly finding the solution. And I think we live in an era where people are obsessed with uh, quick solutions. And I see this a lot with entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs get obsessed with solutions and their products rather than getting obsessed with new questions that they need to ask themselves. So for instance, things are moving. What COVID and, uh, and, and all the pandemic actually taught us is that um, there is a lot of dynamism in this world. And we need to find the questions that we have to ask in terms of finding the insights and solutions to move forward. So instead of us getting obsessed with our ideas, getting obsessed with our solutions, we have to get obsessed with asking questions and continue finding new questions to ask. This is, I think, how society progresses. And there are some societies that are in favor of that, and there are some societies that go against it. So yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, 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 John Stuart Mill made that argument in the 19th century. Maybe he was right. Um, what about the question of the whole question of white men and, 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 and innovation and maybe even asking questions? We've done lots of shows about the democratization of economic opportunity, one with a writer, Lorraine Marchand. Uh, uh, about why it is that only white men who boast of being innovators. We certainly have this in Silicon Valley with the Elon Musks and Mark yeah. Zuckerbergs and Steve Jobs of the world. Is, does questioning come perhaps cost us more naturally to men than women? Or is that a, a, no. a sexist generalization? It's just a sexist generalization. But there is something, something interesting there because I interviewed people from different age groups, different uh, genders, different parts of the world. And women actually mentioned something interesting that it's very hard to ask uh, a question in front of uh, other people because then most probably the fact that they are acknowledging that they don't know something is going to be perceived differently. So a lot of people, a lot of women told me, do you know how difficult it is to ask a question? And that was the time where I realized, yeah, yes, it must be. And what do we have to do to change it, right? Because um, I have a daughter, I have a lot of female students. They have a lot of good questions that they're asking and a lot of edgy questions that you were saying uh, at the beginning of our uh, conversation today. But I think this is something that um, we have to focus on changing, which means that it has to be like, um, a, you know, a equal a playing field for uh, for everybody, right? So everybody comes with uh, their own questions. Everybody's curious when they're born, but something happens throughout this journey. So we have to go back and see what changes for men, what changes uh, for women. You talk to a lot of people in your book, uh, lots of women, Roberta Luca, for example, a British-Brazilian entrepreneur, 
Mary Katrant Zua, a fashion designer. Uh, lots of men as well, of course. Uh, George Karunis, who's a storm chaser in Canada. Angelo Vermoulin, who's a, um, uh, a technologist in Belgium. You begin the book with Peter Beck, who's a, who runs yeah. a New Zealand-based uh, rocket lab, a, a tech company. Did you find that the, the conversation changed between men and women, or did it just depend on the individual? Not at all. I mean, they are equally ambitious and curious and they want to discover new things. Not at all. The, the only thing is that most probably at one point there was somebody that uh, didn't answer the question or uh, told them, for instance, um, not to ask questions. So which may not happen with men, but uh, absolutely no difference in terms of the intention, uh, the intellectual um, uh, capability and interest uh, to do so. Um, so uh, there is nothing there. Um, to actually uh, discuss. The, the only thing is that most probably um, earlier rather than recently, uh, it was very difficult for, them, for women to raise those, uh, those questions. How do you conduct your conversations for the book? I know you've been on a lot of podcasts, uh, well, The Power of Purposeful Curiosity. When you set up your meetings for this book with with all these different people, did you tell them that you had questions to ask them? Are these people you knew? Are these results of conversations you've had over your life? Or do you sit in a room with them and you pepper them with questions, Costas? Yes, this is how it works. So, for instance, I was, um, I was curious to see how many of them will respond to my, um, for instance, uh, um, idea of having a conversation right? Because I was writing a book on, uh, on curiosity. So I've done something differently. Um, a lot of people are emailing those people. So I said, I would like to see whether something else will work. So I wrote a letter to them and I posted it to them. And a lot of people responded very positively. One of the things that they told me when we started the conversation, again, to break the ice and develop a foreign trust was, I wanted to meet, you know, the person who still writes letters and, and posts letters to us. So it, it intrigued them. So it raised their, for instance, curiosity. See, who is this person behind those letters? So these letters were personalized. So there was a lot of research done to write those letters. So I have to actually invest a lot of time to figure out more about them, what made them curious, why they're still curious, what I can discuss with them. And in academic terms, what happens is that we are developing an interview protocol and then we ask, you know, all our, um, uh, interviewees, uh, similar questions, because we like to see whether there are any, for instance, similarities or differences in terms of age, in terms of gender, in terms of uh, geography. So that's why I was having uh, the same questions. So interestingly, there isn't much difference about this, because all these people have actually been very curious for their whole lives. The only difference is some people stay curious in the same profession. So for instance, you have architects. Um, where um, they have been doing the same things, which means, you know, they are um, designing buildings. Maybe what changes is the building, or maybe what, that, uh, what changes is um, where the building uh, will be, which means the geography. There are others, though, that uh, actually branch out, which means that they used to be doing something. They were spending a lot of time on this. They satisfy their needs, so they are moving to something else. So 
I've seen a couple of those changes, which means some stay, of course, some actually branch out, which was a very interesting insight if you consider how they how their curiosity actually leads them from one thing to the next thing. Uh, Costas, of course, you know this as well as I do. The hysteria these days in tech is over AI and chat GPT in particular, smart machines yeah. that supposedly can talk to us as effectively and originally as humans or come close. My sense is that chat GPT and this new age of uh, artificial intelligence is actually going to revalue rather than devalue uh, innovation and particularly human curiosity. Uh, we did a show, for example, with Maura Puccini, who's the chief marketing officer of Pepsi, about the human side of innovation. Do you agree? Do you see that yeah. GPT as a threat to the purposeful curiosity that you're promoting in your book? Or actually, it'd be something that will underline its importance? Um, first of all, uh, chat. GPT formulates things, doesn't execute things yet. Innovation is about execution. So let's uh, actually um, set the record. Uh, sorry, set the record straight on this one. In terms of curiosity, what I say is chat GPT enabling uh, our curiosity, working with our curiosity, and being guided by us. So basically, it's a machine, right? Basically, it gets instructions. So. The better the instructions, the more creative the instructions, the better the outcome will be. So it's an IPO model, input, process, output. So the better the input, the process remains the same, the better will be the output here. So I think it will work. I believe it will, GPT will actually work with humans rather than replace humans. Because if we go back to Peter Beck's example, when you send something to the, to the moon or when you're, you know, right, for instance, in this case, a rocket lab, a California rocket, yes. manufacturer. Uh, absolutely. So the thing that they care about is when they launch something is to learn from it. So in a way, they launch and they learn, they launch and they learn. Now, if you're saying to the machine, okay, uh, what's the best way to launch it? What should they use, et cetera, et cetera. But they went a step um, behind. So they didn't focus, for instance, here. They, step, they, go, they went a step backwards. And they said, which is the best location for us to put the launch pad? Because this is the most important question that we need to ask ourselves. Why? Because if we have to wait for regulators, you know, for other uh, launches to happen, we may have to wait for weeks or months in order to launch. And if we have to wait for weeks or months to launch, it means that we won't learn. Or we will learn uh, quite uh, in a very slow pace. So what they did was they did a lot of research. They asked this question for a while. So they spent some time in terms of uh, um, looking around the globe. And they found one particular part in our planet where you can launch a rocket every 72 hours, if you, if you wish, right? Not if you can, if you wish. Which means that the more they launch, the more they're going to learn. Now, the machine, I don't think that it can do this yet, to actually go backwards and think, you know, what can we do, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, scan the planet, go there. Because a lot of the things that the machine actually does or offers, then it has to be followed by a human being that has to be on the ground that has to go there and see whether what the machine tells us is actually what it is. Well, uh, perhaps, uh, Costas, we're all, we should be thinking of ourselves as all rockets and we're launching ourselves. You've been a good sport here dealing with my rather obnoxious questions. So 
Uh, let's I end. loved it. Uh, I, I'm going to give you a, a special privilege, Costas. You can end. Usually, I end with my own question to my guests, but let's reverse. Uh, you, you've had 30 minutes with me, so you've had a little bit of time figuring out who or what I am. Let's end with a question by you to me. You can ask me anything you want. I may not answer, but at least I'll uh, I'll, I'll listen. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you a very nice, gentle question. What do you like most about this, what you're doing? What I like most about what I'm doing, you mean on the Keenon show or in my life? Correct. On the Keenon show, yes. What I like is that I... I it's a leading question, of course, and it certainly reflects on your purposeful curiosity. It allows me to meet lots of different people in lots of different areas, mm -hmm. ask them questions, any question I can. I can be as obnoxious, as polite, or as impolite as I want. And then after half an hour, I never have to see them again or talk to them. Wow. That's a, that's a very interesting insight um, that you're sharing uh, with me. Thank you. I appreciate the honesty here.